Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today are two guys that I've gotten to know pretty well over the last sort of six months to a year, and uh, eventually said, hey, why don't we just talk about this on, on the air? Uh, and they were nice enough to do it. So Dan Herrera and Lang Jin Wu, um, welcome both guys to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so Dan Thanks, and I know each other originally. Dan was my student at Columbia last year, um, and just, I'll say, because it's embarrassing to say, best student in the class are right there. And he said, look, I'm, I'm trying to start a fund with my friend, um, and I can actually get independent study credit for it if you were to sort of advise us on how one goes about this. And I was like, yeah, sure, happy to. And so we did this whole independent study together. And then at some point, I'm like, you know, it's a good story of like these two young guys who um, did not necessarily come from a lot of privilege, but uh, have attained some pretty incredible things and are making this choice and why, right? Because you guys are, you know, in an unusual position. So let's let's both start off with your background then. So Dan, walk walk us through your career up till this point and where you grew up, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, born to two Cuban parents uh, who came to this country in search of opportunity and the opportunity they didn't have in Cuba, you know, put yourself in... The, Where uh, were you born? I was I was born in Miami, in Miami, in Miami, okay. Florida. Um, you know, put yourself in the fifties and sixties. My parents, you know, were uh, really in the height of communism in Cuba, and said, "Hey, we need we need a better life um, in the states." And that birthed me. How did they get over? Uh, flights. Uh, so back back then, uh, you know, the uh, the U.S. government, uh, you know, in this like anti-communist wave, were were bringing. Um, we're bringing Cubans to the island, uh, okay. and so that was a big, big sponsored program of theirs back in back in the day. Uh, so fast forward to when I was born, uh, born in Miami, um, you know, was uh, was uh, had a you know for the most part um, humble upbringing. Uh, went to school at Florida State. Uh, then my first job out of college is where Liang and I met, uh, which was uh, our first job, uh, AT Carney as mm-hmm. management consultants. And after that, uh, I said, hey. Uh, can't do this management consulting thing. What 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 about it made you say that? Yeah, it, honestly, it was it was just the corporate the corporate grind, being a cog in in a, in a larger corporation, really not having much impact. It it just weighed on me, uh, and I felt like I was a shell of myself uh, in in that time period. And do you think that's the common view by people who are working at places like that, or do you think that you guys just had a different mentality? Yeah, I think I think you know you'll you'll definitely hear from Liang's Liang's background in a second, but I think both of us the reason why we gelled during that time was just we knew that there was something more than this, um, and it, it was almost innate. You know, it wasn't something that people told us, "Hey, you need to get out of there." It's just we knew. So you guys are both eighty Carney, and then ha- within what period of time do you each leave from each other? Uh, I think within a week. Yeah. Oh wow! You've yeah. really yeah. You really timed it. Yeah. All yeah. right. So what happens next? So for me, I, I said, okay, you know, I, I've always had this urge to be an entrepreneur. I was that kid who had the car wash business, the landscape business. I was always into some yeah, some sort of yeah, business. Totally. And, and you know, I said, hey, let me, um, I was a co-founder of a startup in Mexico City. Uh, what kind of startup was it? We were basically a uh, startup launching through a public-private partnership um, an exclusive ride-hailing platform with the government of Mexico City. Mm-hmm. So all Mexico City taxis, which is which represents the largest uh, urban fleet in the world, uh, was basically built, and and this this solution that would modernize them was built and 
um, and implemented by our, our company at the time. Um, basically scaled it um, and uh, basically was acquired at some point. Mm-hmm. And from there I said, hey, you know, we throughout this process we raised from investors. Uh, it must be interesting to figure out what they do. Let me go and try it. Uh, and so that was the genesis for uh, jumping into investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was investing uh, through an early stage syndicate made up of different family offices, venture funds and high net worth individuals mm-hmm. back in Miami. And uh, yeah, and so that, that really planted the seed and um, was, was some of the early beginnings as to- And what made you choose to go to business school? Yeah, great. So honestly, um, what we saw um, with others uh, who had similar paths as emerging managers in venture was they had one of two things. They had a track record and they had pedigree. They had credibility. Um, and I knew, you know, going to Columbia Business School was going to do that. Yeah. Uh, on top of many other tangentially related things like networks, you know, that's how I met you uh, and many other, you know, amazing supporters for yeah. of us. Cool. All right, Len, walk us through the same thing. Yeah, totally. So my story starts uh, in China in a place called Guangzhou, which is off the coast of Hong Kong. Think of manufacturing everything for the world. That's yep. where uh, I was from. But I, you know, came to the States, uh, moved to Brooklyn. How old were you when you Two came years old. Okay. And so that's actually a really important point because I grew up with this Asian American identity where I was constantly like uh, going back and forth. Like I always joke about uh, joke about it with my friends. Too Asian to be American, too American to be Asian. Yeah. So, so you were always Nobody like, quite accepts you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, at home you're one way, at school you're another way. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, but I went to college at the University of Connecticut. Um, and for me, I picked UConn kind of on a whim. You know, my framework was close enough to home because I love New York, yeah. uh, but far enough to feel like I went out there and did something. Um, and so, you know, study finance and accounting at UConn, uh, growing up in a super humble household similar to Dan, my parents' definition of success for me was, hey, suit up one day, go into these big buildings, and that was success. So my right. first job was at PwC doing consulting, uh, very focused on M&A and really kind of learning that. Um, I actually really love learning about how businesses work and all of that, um, you grow up in New York seeing it and you can't get away from it, yeah, right? Totally. Um, I wanted a more wide experience, wanted to kind of leave New York, I felt like an adult now. Um, so I interview for AT Carney and that's how Dan and I met. Uh, what he didn't tell you was we actually, you know, both come from state schools. Consulting firms don't really recruit at state right. schools. And so we felt like, hey, cars stacked against you. Uh, we met on an online uh, consulting case prep site, which means, for those who don't know, when you're in consulting, you have to go through this grueling process of like, okay, here's a business problem, solve it for me in 30 minutes. You know? And so Dan and I met on one of these sites, started uh, practicing with each other for like hours uh, a day, mm-hmm. uh, did that for like a month, and we kind of joked, hey, both get the offer in Chicago, we should live together. And so that's what happened, and that's how we ended up building this relationship. So Dan felt like AT Kearney Magic Consulting was a little soulless. Was that your view too? Um, not always. I think when I went into it, in the beginning for me, it was just like, wow, I am a 20-something-year-old. I'm going to be in rooms with CEOs, CFOs, and they might want to read my analysis. Right. I thought that was like pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I think where it started to sort of take a turn, and, and for me personally, it started getting kind of repetitive. Mm-hmm. You know, you do your fifth strategy project, and it's the same playbook. And that was when I really kind of learned a lot about myself thinking that you know novelty and exploring the frontier and being different was really important. And that is definitely influenced by New York City and my upbringing and just kind of always meeting different people. And so I really wanted that and I wanted to stop 
being an advisor and wanted to like kind of get my hands dirty, so to speak. So that's when I went to business school. Right, but there was a period of time between when you left AT Carney and when you started at business school. What'd you do? Yeah, so uh, me being me, the, I left, uh, I think we, end of May was when we left. Uh, we had a dinner to celebrate, and the week later, I joined a friend's startup as an interim head of strategy. What kind of startup was uh, it? They were doing food recovery uh, and trying uh, to, you know, so you host a conference, a bunch of stuff gets thrown away, yep. perfectly edible food, yep. ops problem, logistics problem. Yep. How what was you, it called? Uh, company's called Copia. Oh, I'm an investor in Copia. Oh, great. Yeah, I was awesome. wondering. I was about to say, like, I know a company. Okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, now, yeah. look, it's, I'm an investor in the sense of the hunger work we do, I believe, is going to require... Uh, a combination of solutions from government, from nonprofits, exactly. from the private sector. So it was a, I, I like them. It was more of an investment to see if we could get an idea going as opposed to like this one's going to, you know, pay yeah. for the kids' college fund. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, uh, but, and I actually, when Kimberly just did her last deck, I spent a lot of time with her kind of going Great. through it. So awesome. how long were you at Copia for? Uh, it was just summer internship. I was helping um, a guy by the name of Mike. He was COO then. Uh-huh. And yeah. so he was one of my managers in consulting. Uh, and, you know, he was like, hey, we just need a consulting type, MBA type yeah. to come in and, you know, work on a bunch of different things. And uh, I had that generalist mindset, really love just like seeing things come together. So it made sense for me. Cool. So you're there and then start business school that fall? Yeah, exactly. So I was lucky enough to get into, uh, you know, Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started that in the fall. And I went to business school with this very extreme idea of like, I'm just going to do the craziest thing possible. And, and around this time, my parents also had this shift in mindset where they told me, don't work in a corporation, don't wear a suit to work. Why? I, I, I would call it like them maybe once they've seen, you know, living in this country and the opportunities I've had. And, and granted, you know, in UConn, a lot of my experiences were a lot of firsts, right? I was yeah. first in my family to go to college, first in my family to go to business school, let alone Harvard. Uh, first in my family to like study abroad, right? That wasn't a thing. And right. so they were like, yeah, you know, Liang figured it out. He'll probably be okay. Like maybe we should just let him decide. But that's great. I mean, I feel like that's very, look, like you guys, I come from an immigrant family and yeah. like very rare. I mean, so when I went to law school and then told my parents like, look, yeah, I know I have all these, you know, really high paying offers from all these law firms. And I have all this debt. I'm going to go work in the parks department. Um, you know, they, they didn't get over it for years. Like, it was really like a giant blow to them. So it sort of really speaks well of your parents that they were able to yeah. to see that. What about yours, Dan? Were they, did they want you just to follow the kind of most stable path possible, or how did they see it? Yeah, my, my, my dad in particular took took that role in my family with, with just facilitating anything that he could with just, like, the dreams that I had of some of my professional ambitions, mm-hmm. he would facilitate in any way that he could. Um, and, you know, whether that, so, you know, I may come to him, I may have come to him one day saying, hey, I wanted to be a lawyer. And he would say, hey, who, who do I know within the family or, you know, yeah. uh, within within the friend group that is a lawyer? And then he, then I would say, oh, you know, this was interesting, but not really that. But but my my dad in particular was was very supportive of whatever I wanted to do. So to the extent that, I, I had these crazy dreams. He was always supportive of it. Um, even now, he has no idea what a venture fund is. Um, but he's like, as long as you're chasing your dreams, right. um, that's what matters. So look, the, the, the math would show that people who are first generation or immigrants from, you know, families of color tend to ultimately have less, uh, you know, they're in places like Harvard Business School, Columbia Business School, less. Um, so to a certain extent, you guys kind of defied the odds a little bit, just statistically speaking. How much of that was because you had parents that were that supportive? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one first. I, I think it's it's 
a lot of it and it's not even the stuff they say uh, we always joke around asian families don't say i love you right ever so it's that's not the language people use but you know it's like the little things like when i went to harvard my parents didn't really care like what i was going to do they just assume hey you got there and it's going to work out and and i think throughout life the other thing i've learned now that i've gotten older is just you know when you're being around a certain type of people right you kind of absorb yep. that and so i saw my parents hustling throughout life and i had a lot of responsibility you know lived in a uh, house with my aunt's family my grandparents and i was the oldest of siblings and so you know when i was eight years old like my parents don't speak a lot of english i, I was the one sole english speaker and we had to pay a bill and they were like okay write this check i think it's for fifty dollars <laughs> and i have to like figure out i don't know if i even counted that much right that high at the time and so that was a lot of the experiences i had mm -hmm. but they were never mean about it right it was just the life i was in and so it was always this kind of like hustle mentality and and just like get it done and you know if it doesn't then we'll figure it but, out but what's interesting also is your parents sort of defy the kind of immigrant stereotype right which mm -hmm. is you know this was my experience we sacrificed everything to get here and you have to take the next step and therefore whatever is the safest most guaranteed way to do that is what needs to happen so for you guys I'm like never leaving at carney mm -hmm. or you know, now instead of pursuing venture capital, pursuing a more traditional career like investment banking. Um, and so, but what's ironic is, if I had to bet, you guys are gonna be a lot more successful than the people that you worked with at AT Carney over time. And so, in the immigrant parents wanting ultimately what's best for the family, by just supporting you guys rather than demanding that you follow a certain tra track and path, they actually did better, just like had sure. I gone to a law firm, the career I had puts away. I wouldn't be having a podcast that people are listening to right now. <laughs> totally. Right? Sure. Um, so in my case, I had to just defy them. In your case, it's, it's nice you guys got that kind of support. Okay, so now let's go to business school. Um, before I started teaching business school, I thought it was kind of a joke. Um, when I was in law school at Chicago, the first year I lived in the dorms and the law dorm and the business dorm were the same dorm, and I felt like all I was doing was studying. I was more than I ever studied in my life. And it's like all they were doing was like watching TV, right? And it was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Um, so I always had this view like business school students are really soft. Uh, and then I get this email during COVID saying, hey, would you like to teach a Columbia business school? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, just that weird thing you do, just teach that. I'm like, okay. So, okay. So, so my views of it have evolved a little bit after teaching a couple of semesters. What did you guys expect business school to be like? What was it like? And for people thinking about going, what's the right scenario in which you should choose to go? Yeah, um, business school for me, my expectation was uh, if I had, if I maximized all of it, which which I feel you know now having graduated a couple of weeks ago, I did um, was just getting to know was was the one of the only times in my life where for two years I would have unobstructed access to you know, the movers and shakers of the world. Um, you know, you as, as one example, Bradley, you know, you were the type of person going into business school I had hoped to meet. Um, friends like like Liang, while we didn't meet in business school, there are many Liangs who I met in business school that yeah. are going to be lifelong friends and hopefully business partners in the future. Yeah. So, you know, business schools where you have this coalescence of people, ideas, um, all, you know, for two years, hammered at you day after day after day um now this is somebody like me who who who, who tended to see the the lines connecting as i as i made these relationships um 
But I also had a lot of other friends, and again, this is no judgment on them, but they saw it as like a two two year vacation. Yeah. So you know, uh, to to the point that those you, guys watch TV. In exactly. The dorm those guys yeah. watching TV in the dorm room. Yeah. Except <laughs> except here they were drinking out out and about, yeah. <laughs> and probably some TV in there too. Okay. So the, the, therefore, Dan, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're saying, "Should I go to business school?" and if so, what do I do to make it worthwhile? What's I mean, yeah, exactly. What's your answer? Mine would be have a purpose, you know, have have a focus for, for how you plan to use the time in business school. And it's going to be the most rewarding experience you'll ever have in your life. Um, and does that mean when you say focus, know what you want to do coming out of business school? Or is business school a good place to go to if you're just like, I'm really smart. I don't kind of know what I do. So I'll just go there and see if I can figure it out. Great question. I think I think it's both, to be honest. Uh, uh, I was I was in the camp of having a focus for me meant Liang and I knew we were going to start this firm as soon as I graduated um, and as soon as he left his his role. Um, uh, and then I have other friends who, you know, may not have that type of focus, but are, are exploring intentionally. Um, and I think that that intentional exploration while in business school is just as effective as somebody like me who has, you know, a particular focus and a particular right. path um, as a as a through line. What percentage of your classmates sort of either came in with a focus or at least put the right mentality to it to get the most out of it? Yeah. Um, this is this is where your uh, your characterization of business school as being the softies is, is not too far off <laughs> yeah. because I would say between those two camps, you're probably looking at 20% of business school students. Yeah. 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 Well, at least there's 20% that you're going to do better. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. reduces competition. So, Liang, what about you? What, what did you think school was going to be like? And coming into Harvard, right? Yeah. The most renowned of all schools in the yeah. world. Like, what were you expecting? And then what was it actually like? Yeah. So, I think the expectation was, look, one of the biggest institutions in the world. You go in and everything's kind of micromanaged and you're on a conveyor belt and like you're going to do your two years, get the high price degree, and then you're you're off to the races. I think for me to like answer the previous question, I, I think Dan's spot on, right? You, I think there's two camps. One, you go in and you're super deliberate, right? I know I want to do X, Y, Z, and this is a platform to just jump higher. Yep. I was immediately on the other side, which is for the first time, I felt like I had so much optionality like infinite optionality. And I think business school for me was a place to just like figure out what I like, what I don't like. And Harvard and I'm sure Columbia as well, they load up the schedule, right? On any given day, there's 80 events you could go to and you could pick one. And so it forced me to figure out like what type of person that I want to be, who did I want to hang out with? Yeah. I ended up spending a fair amount of time down at MIT actually because of my love of technology and blockchain. And, and you just uh, wander into the room and they'd be like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, like, I, no, I... I um, did you have to get like, permission I was something? like moonlighting as a, as a venture capitalist for a, for a firm out in Palo Alto. Uh-huh. And so my platform was easy. I was meeting founders. Yeah. But then once you meet founders, you meet the people behind the scenes who actually yeah. make the program. Do, do the work. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so for me, I, you know, it, I saw it as like a truly like a buffet of options. Yeah. But in that buffet of options, I had to make a choice because time is finite, right? I have to sleep and do all of that. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, it really forced me to say, who do I want to spend my time with? What do I want to spend my time with? And these sound like simple questions, except for back to your question on the corporate world, that gets actually decided for you a lot of times. And then for me, it was the sense of freedom. I was like, oh, on a random Thursday, I could just you know, go talk to someone on random stuff that I was interested in. And that, I just never had that. So Dan went into business school, it sounds like, with a pretty clear sense of what he wanted to do and really focused on that throughout. 
you went in with a much broader, like, hey, let me yes. figure this out, which I think if you looked at Dan's analysis, you would have said, Liang's more likely to fail because you're not coming in there with a clear purpose. Yeah. Um, so how did you avoid the, like, hey, I'll just go to all these you know, fun mixers and, and relax and have fun for two years? Yeah, I, I will say um, I probably did the least amount of partying in my class, and I was proud of that, actually. Um, it was still deliberateness, but I gave myself a sense to, you know, so like first semester, right, I had three industries I wanted to learn, right, robotics, AI, and blockchain, all right, and so, you know, for me, I just focused a lot on that. Um, I wanted to try this venture capital thing, so I was lucky enough to kind of get picked up to do that, and so my experience was like chasing these intellectual things that I felt like I never gave myself a shot to do because when you're working on a consulting case, I mean, you have a lot of work and you have to focus on that one problem. I was this like intellectually free spirit. I yeah. read more than I ever had. I've explored more topics. I'd heard more perspectives than I've ever had. And I think two years of that in an intense environment, um, you know, kind of really changed the way you think. So, I think you got really into Web3 during yes. that period of time. So how'd you get into it? And given that everyone has a different definition, how do you define Web3? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, first time I ever like dug into Web3, uh, Dan and I were still living together. It was New Year's Eve on, in 2015. I was on the treadmill, read the Bitcoin white paper. Uh -huh. And I remember just having this like, like, oh, holy shit moment. Kind of was like, wait, yeah, money on the internet doesn't really work that well for a lot of people. And we're an immigrant household. My view was more global because I have friends in other countries and you kind of see these problems. Yep. Didn't make a move bad decision, I was like, okay, great, let me sit on this, right? And then in school, I started talking a lot more about it and just exploring, and there was like seven of us in the Bitcoin club at HBS. Right, but, right. Yeah. Oh, well, but why do you need blockchain to bank the unbanked? Yeah, totally. So for me, I think blockchain, when it's not controlled by a central entity, yeah. um, I think that's interesting because you're forcing people to take more ownership. Totally. And I'm not saying that's the state of the world. I think one thing I really approach this with is, you know, there's a spectrum of optimism versus pessimism, which mm -hmm. is an emotional thing, right? Like I want something to work out versus I don't think it will work out. And then there's the intellectual spectrum of skeptic or not, right? So I would say I'm an uh, optimist, but a skeptic, right? And so uh, the reason I preface it this way is I don't think there is a state of the world where the extreme works. So fully decentralized and not having any institutions to govern anything for me feels like the wrong answer. It's probably more decentralized than what it is today. So, okay, so you developed a, a kind of a working theory of, of what Web3 is like. Yeah. When did you decide, hey, this is what I want to focus on for my career? And, and why did you decide that? What, what is it about Web3 that makes you feel like, hey, this is where I'm going to have a significant impact? Yeah, uh, I think two key things. Um, and uh, the reason why I really started getting more into it is similar. Uh, we, I bet guess I have a habit of doing independent studies. So I did my fair share, yeah. you know, did research on like uh, uh, movement, of, uh, movement of value in Africa, the challenges there, and wrote a paper there with a professor who's, who's, who's very deep into that space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, started doing stuff like that uh, to really kind of get into the technology. But philosophically, I think there's really two things about Web3 that I think are super important and why I'm gonna devote most of my career through this uh, firm we're starting up. One is Web3 to me is all about People who create value should capture more of that value. It's the simplest way I could say it, right? And so today, a lot of people create value, platforms capture most of the value. And I'm not saying there isn't a room and time and place for platforms, I just think it's very uneven. Right, but could, couldn't the emergence of the creator economy still fix that problem with the Internet 
Yes, and in many ways, like think of platforms like Patreon has gone a really long way, right? The difference is that could change on a whim, right? And so what the what what I see Web three as is really instead of this top down model where you have a platform say, here's how we work, here's the economics, you either play you play in it or you don't. I think the idealistic but the optimistic vision of Web three is it's a more grassroots. There's a bunch of people. We form niches, we want to work this way, and this niche doesn't have to be a $10 billion company, it could be a small thing, but you could have five niches you're a part of, right. and, and so it's a little bit more micro and grassroots. So do you think that therefore, as Web3 becomes a reality, the internet will be more democratic but less lucrative? Uh, so I see it, uh, yeah, so more democratic or more equal or more voices heard. I yeah. think the ability to do that, like can someone do it, will be yes. Will someone do it is the grand experiment. Right, and why won't, so like when the metaverse comes, and obviously we can debate yeah. the, what the metaverse is versus what Web3 is, yeah. but but the metaverse seems to me at the moment is gonna be generally giant corporations like Apple and Microsoft and Facebook creating their own sort of in, immersive experiences that are walled gardens that are trying to keep you in there where they continue to control everything. That's sort of the opposite of what you're talking about in terms of democratizing and, and, and distributing power more, more broadly. So how is it that, or is it true, does the metaverse and Web3 have contradictory goals? I don't, I don't think so, and this is where you have this spectrum, right? So you might have a certain segment of people who say, yes, this sounds great, I own everything, I manage everything, but am I really gonna do that in my day to day? And so they might go to the you know more centralized metaverse solution like the, whatever Apple creates one day, yeah. right? Then you have this other side where people are like, yep, I come from a humble background, I've gotten screwed by the system before, or I've, I've gotten rug pulled by a platform before and all of that. And so they might be more interested. My thinking, and again, we're very early, my thinking is that there's a time and place for both to exist. And that's why I always think about Anything in Web3, it's a spectrum. So Web3 is to metaverse is as crypto is to fiat. Yes, that's not a bad way to Fair say way it. Fair way to yeah. say it? Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're going to pivot to your fund now, but the SEC has some very clear rules around sure. what you can and can't say publicly. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys some sort of pretty broad questions that sure. my counsel told me I could ask. We're sure. going to send this to her afterwards to make sure we didn't get anything Great. wrong. Great. Um, so l let's start with the concept of what made you guys decide, like, okay, we're still really young, right? Uh, we're, people should give us money and trust us with their money to invest. What made you make that decision? Yeah, uh, the, the, the first thing is knowing that the person right beside me, in this case, Liang, is, is the, the person I could imagine managing all this responsibility with. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think you have venture firms live and die by partnerships. Um, and so... That was the first thing that I needed to make sure we both had uh, going into going and starting the firm that we that we are, um, and then after that it was it was understanding could we could we fit a need um, in which it, with with which the areas that we're investing in, and and that was yes and you know we'll I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll dive into that, um, but between the partnership and the alignment and the need of of what we were investing thematically. Um, you know, it was it was very obvious that that this was this was something that we and, could. And so, either of you, are, like, like, I'm sure that if you wanted to, Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or someone would have paid you guys 
a really big amount of money to come work there. Instead, you're effectively going to just scrape and scrap for a couple of years to even have the chance of getting in the game here. Sure. Um, did that at all appeal to you guys, or were you just like, fuck that, we're not interested? Yeah, I, I'll take this one. Um, I recently actually left my day job, so i fresh off the burner, so to speak. Yeah. Um, great question. I think for me, it wasn't necessarily the money that was appealing. Certainly a lot of money, right? These places pay yeah. you. I think for me, no matter what I did, the journey was like evident, right? Like, you know, you grind for a couple of years, you get the promotion, maybe you run a bigger business, run a PL, you sell more, you know, it's, it's, it's like a story we've seen. And I think I went from this place and now kind of going back to my roots, right? I ran from this place of like where my parents, myself, for a certain time, for like a decade when I was younger, just wanted certainty. And then now we've like 180, right? We want this sense of freedom and freedom is yeah. rooted in uncertainty. Like, I don't know what's gonna happen. And I think this is one thing Dan and I explored a lot and helped each other a lot with at AT Carney was we could do this for 10, 20, 30 years, make partner. Like, I don't doubt that. Yeah. But if I know how the story's gonna turn out, right, it's just not exciting. And it's the same thing. I always use this analogy, you know, I'm a lifelong gamer. If I knew how the game end, why would I wanna play it? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, same, when I was in law school, I have a couple of friends who like, truly have they were meant to work at law firms they enjoy working at law sure. firms it's worked out great for them yeah everyone else i think kind of did it because they were like oh this is what i'm supposed to do i've got all the student debt um and then some of them then pivoted to things that were more interesting but i think some of them got stuck so the fact that you guys had the wisdom at a really young age to sort of see that and avoid that is is impressive so okay though so you're you're, you're two smart guys you're young you have energy of all that stuff but like venture is an unbelievably hard <laughs> business to break into, right? And yeah, you have good credentials and all that, but still. So does um, everyone else, right? right? So how do you think about, okay, I have to convince you know institutional investors, or at least for, for fund one, family offices, high net worth individuals, to give us money. Um, I can't answer for the pitch, because that would be considered marketing the fund. But how daunting or not was that for you guys, um, knowing that this is what it requires? Yeah. Very daunting. Uh, I mean, you're you're somebody that that lived it yourself with your yeah. first fund, right? Taking taking two years to so hard. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Jordan and I came close to getting up a few times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know, if if somebody like you with your background and your pedigree and Jordan's background and his pedigree took two years to raise a first fund, yeah. You know, Liang and I are going into this with with eyes wide open in that in that regard. Um, you know, I think I think we you know um, weaving the last last discussion that we had. Just a few seconds ago with this, you know, it's this ability to dare to dream mm. and that really being the motivation to carry us through this, uh, that that is really what's going to propel us to, to our final close. Yeah. And, you know, as far as as far as how we're actually going to do that tactically, um, you know, it just involves um, really relying on our network. Um, those people who would say, hey, regardless of what Dan and Liang do, I know they're hustlers. Uh, I know they're going to do whatever it is that they set their mind to, so I'm going to back them as people. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it's the story, you know, very similar to what to what the rece the reception that you yeah. Got although I would say at least one thing you guys have going for you is you're at least coming from business school, which feels a little more comfortable to yep. institutional sure. LPs. Yeah, for me, like some guy out of politics was just nuts to them, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. um, what I learned it took me three fundraisers to do this is. 
They actually want you to seem as similar as possible to what they already know with a slight twist. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly the opposite of how I see everything. So I was like, here are a hundred ways in which my funds will be different than everyone else's, and here's why that makes it better. And like I literally couldn't have been saying the more the wrong thing before. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But it really took me a long time yeah. uh, to figure that out. So it, in the way that at least I see venture having evolved and evolving, you have mega funds, right? You have funds now that are worth tens of billions of dollars, even VC funds like Sequoia, let alone kind of the, the tigers of the world yeah. who kind of enter the, the game in another angle. Um, and then you have small but very differentiated funds like mine, right, that like have a very specific purpose. You try to raise money from us if we can sort of meet your broader needs. Uh, and I see a role for us because we, we solve a very specific problem. Sure. Um, and then there's a sort of over the last five years, this booming kind of mid-tier generalist funds um, that don't have the scale of a Sequoia or a Tiger or someone, but don't sure. have the differentiation of someone like us either. Um, what bucket do you guys aspire to be in of those three? And is that how you look at the world too? Sure. I, I think it's one way we look at the world. And uh, I think we kind of came to this point where like, you know, your comment around like very daunting, yes, but I think very daunting is a feature for us, not okay. a bug, okay. right? One of the earlier things you ever told us when you, we started getting to know each other was you got to love the game. Yeah. And I think that's what it's about for us. To your question around, you know, do we want to be Sequoia or Andreessen or do we want to be, you know, all that? I think we'll start maybe more niche, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's the getting in the game part. I think Dan and I are the type of person where when we do work, we're going to want to do more work. We're going to chase more interesting problems. And so I think if we do it right, I think we will get scale. Now, I think the venture landscape, especially you know in Web3, but certainly everywhere else, I think the expectation of the founders are also changing. And I like that because I think it forces the people who provide capital at all types of, uh, in the entire stack to have to evolve a little bit. So I'll give you an example, right? When a Web3 founder comes to me, Right um, or any investor, the money is not as interesting. Now, granted, we're in a correction, all yeah. of that. What they want to know is, do you know the tech? Are you in the communities, right? Are you, you know, there's this term, are you degen enough? I literally got asked by a founder I was trying to advise. He was like, how degen are you? And like, what does that I, mean? Yeah, so degen started off mm -hmm. in this, uh, in crypto as this, like people who, you know, will get into something, gamble away. The term has evolved into how internet native are you? So I grew up as got a gamer it. where like I met friends on an internet chat room and that's how I met people and that's how people meet people today. Across the world, I have friends in like Korea, Germany, because we met on Discord. But now we might try to work together on something, right? And so I don't think the average investor, uh, VC, mm -hmm. today knows how to do that. And it's very easy to test, right? Like if you're gonna be investing in the uh, Web3 space or in the NFT space, the easy test is do you own an NFT, Mr. Right. or Mrs. VC, right? Yeah. And the answer is usually no. Right. And so I think the expectation is changing. And that's where we feel like maybe there's some investor founder market fit or whatever you want to call it. where like we're just the people who you could come to to kind of hang out with. But we'll solve problems for you. Right. right? And things like that. And so I think that's becoming pretty unique. And we see that as a, a superpower, but not one we develop. We just and then within that, the kind of blockchain, Web3, metaverse, crypto mentality, it really is its own mindset and school Correct. of thought and community. Yeah. So yeah. you can be linked into that even and be a little a traditional and it works in the yeah. way that if you're just trying to do traditional venture it might be harder yeah um, so go ahead. but I think to your point Bradley like the the uh, I, I think I think venture as an industry has evolved such that non-differentiated capital especially at scale um, mm -hmm. is is just going to be 
harder and harder to um, to survive as a model. Yeah, I think the Great. tusks of the world on one end and the mega scaled funds at the other are pretty much going to be what venture looks like uh, yeah. at you know for in in, in continuity. So last question. So you guys are when you started thinking about your fund, the market was really really struggling. Right, people were funding new funds. Every startup was getting their new round of financing. Uh, things have changed dramatically since then, and I could see it both as good and bad for you guys. Right, so it's bad in that raising fund one is hard enough, and now you're in this environment where people are going to be more cautious about deploying capital. Sure. It's good in that you're going to be buying in in your early deals at much better valuations yep. uh, than if the market were really hot right now. So knowing that there's both pros and cons to this, how do you evaluate the world you're in today? Yeah. Um, I will start off with just uh, prefacing that I, so at least in Web3, yeah. right? I joined in formally like in 2018 when we sh entered a bear market. And at that time, little projects like OpenSea and Solana and Polygon were starting, like, you know, just a small team somewhere. Right. And then they became the darlings of this bull market. So I, I think actually the bear market is the best time to get into things because if you can find a series builders, you get an Airbnb-like outcome. Right. And, you know, they've done studies on this. Airbnb was, I think, 2008, 2009. Airbnb and Uber were both born during the financial crisis. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that's what gets us excited. I think the hard part of actually getting this thing off the ground, we see it less as an investor journey. It's the entrepreneur founder's journey, right? Everything you plan, the planning is good, but it's all going to get scrapped away because all of a sudden inflation is high as it's ever been in yeah. X decades. And so for us, um, I always lean on this thing like, uh, I think in 2015, you know, we used to go on these long walks for, for coffee and we always joked about like, let's build something big. But like, I think when we do it, it'll be in some sort of recession. And so now it's kind of like so now it's back. coming full circle. Exactly. Yeah. And so I see that as, you know, maybe it's a little bit too I, philosophical. And I think you're right. Like when for funds one and, and two, especially fund one, but even fund two, it was total startup mentality, right? Yes. It was like yes. Jordan and I were sitting in a garage somewhere, you know, with this idea that most people thought was crazy, yeah. you know, trying to sort of explain to people and make it work. What I have noticed is now that we're in fund three, mm. and we've kind of graduated to like a real world grown up business, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden you have to start putting infrastructure in place yeah. that feels like a waste of money and like bureaucracy. Sure. But if you're going to support this much bigger AUM and much bigger deals, yeah. you need it. But yeah, I have to say like just like how every successful founder, whether it's of a fund or a company or anything else, is nostalgic for those days in the garage. Yeah. I kind of understand. It, it's hard to, as it seems at the time, I'm kind of nostalgic for what you guys are about to, uh, yeah. about to go through. So, yeah. cool. I would normally ask how people could find you guys, but I think that would probably not be okay given the sure. SEC yep. rules here. So yeah, I'm sure. going to skip that question. So, anything else you guys want to cover before we wrap up? Uh, no, I mean, I, I would say, Bradley, thank, thank you so much for sure. the opportunity and the, and the platform. You know, hopefully, uh, when it comes time to uh, you know share uh, share a more formal more formal idea of the fund. Yeah. Uh, we can hopefully come back on and, and do that. But yeah, no, thank you so much for sure. The, no, no, it's, it's, it's been super fun working with you guys. So, yeah. Liang, Dan, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you. Thank you.